0: Father, as we come before your Holy Presence to your Holy Word right now, Father, awaken in our souls a new delight for your truth. And let your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to create a holy desire within us that longs for the words of the living Christ. We will not hunger for you. So, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will take these next few moments, as your word is being opened, give us faith. Give us a fresh desire to long for your truth, that we will want to accept and humbly come before you your sovereign will in our hearts. Awake our souls as we come before you this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. There once was a story about a boy with a bag of marbles, and he was eyeing the bag of candy that his sister had. So he decided to make a bargain with his sister. The little boy said to his sister, I'm going to give you this bag of marbles if you were to give me a bag, your bag of uh, candy. The sister thought for a moment and agreed. So the boy went to his room to get his marbles. As he went to his room to get his marbles, he took one last look at the marbles and saw how pretty the marbles were. So he decided to keep some of the best-looking marbles for himself. And then he took the rest and gave them to his sister. His sister then gave him the bag of candy. That night, the boy couldn't sleep. He kept tossing and turning in his bed. Finally, he woke up, sat in his bed, and he wondered aloud. I wonder if my sister had given me all her candy. Has God given us his best? Or has God gone up to his room and reserved some of the best marbles for himself and gave us only a portion of his love? Did God promise to be with us, and when He promised to be with us, did He leave a part of Himself out? If not, why is it that sometimes He makes us wait prolonged periods of time for Him? Why is it that there is always moments of waiting upon Him? Is it because God has not given His best to us, just like the boy who kept the best marbles for Himself? Because God really loved us. Daniel chapter 2 verses 4 until chapter 7 verse 28 is written in Aramaic and Aramaic is the lingua franca of the Babylonian world. This section is written in Aramaic because God was not just addressing the Jews but God was addressing the whole world. In fact, in uh, addressing also the Babylonians and the Persians. But when we come to chapter 8, chapter 8 becomes very focused and very intimate where God actually addresses the Jews, His own people. And God actually answers the question, does He really, really care for His people? Has God given us His best? And so in chapter 8, the language reverts back to Hebrew rather than Arabic. Hebrew is the language of God's people. So God is trying to get personal with, with the Jews, with Daniel's first hearers at this time. And see, this part of the book is for you. This is where we come to have a heart and heart talk, where God actually sits down with His own people and have a heart and heart talk to His people. Does God really care for His covenantal people or has God forgotten his own people? You see at the heart of God's covenant with his people is that God had made a a set of promises to Abram. In Genesis chapter 15, God told Abram that he's going to make a covenant. He's going to cut a covenant with him. And in order to cut a covenant with Abram, Abram was supposed to bring some animals uh, to offer to God. Amongst the animals that Abram brought was a goat and a ram. And when evening came, Abram fell asleep and God, through a smoking fireboat, the Bible tells us, with a blazing torch, walked through the pieces of the cut animal such as God walked through the lamb, the ram that was cut, God walked through the goat that was cut. What was God doing? God is here promising that he loves Israel with his whole heart. And that's why God is making this covenant with Abram. And what is God saying here about walking through the cut animals? God is saying, I'm willing to walk with you. I'm going to give you my best. I'm going to walk with you even when you are surrounded and when you are walking in the shadow of death, represented by these animals that have been dead, cut into pieces. I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death with you and I will not abandon you. That was the promise God made to his people. This is the covenant that God established with Abram in, in Genesis chapter 15. Many years have passed since Abram's time. We now come to Daniel, which is situated towards the end of the Old Testament. And the question now arises, has God really promised us his best? Has God, has God forgotten his promise to walk with us through the shadow valley of the shadow of death Will God walk with us through the ram, the cut ram, and the cut goat? So here we find Daniel chapter 8, which we're going to look at in our series together on the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, tells us that it was the third year of King Belshazzar's reign when Daniel received this vision. This means that more than 53 years have passed since Daniel started working in Babylon. Just a long time has God forgotten his people. And they were no longer in Israel. They were, the Bible tells us here in chapter 8, that they were in Babylon in a city called Susa. Where is God? Where is that God who made such grandiose promise to Abraham that he will walk with them even through The cut ram and the cut goat through the valley of the shadow of death. So in Daniel chapter 8, it's not surprising that this vision in chapter 8 consists of two animals. So Daniel saw two animals. And shouldn't surprise us considering what we have heard in Genesis 15. That the two animals that Daniel encountered in this vision, one is a ram. And one is a goat. Why a goat and a ram? They were the animals that Abraham put on the altar in Genesis 15, where God promised that he will walk with Israel, even through the cut goat and the ram. The ram here, according to verse 20, represents the the king of Persia and and, uh, Media, such the meats. And after which... Came a goat. So initially there was a ram in this vision, and after which came a goat, or more precisely in the Hebrew, a he goat, which would knock off the ram. So they will kill each other. It was in a valley of the shadow of slaughter, where one king will attack another king, and it was a valley of the shadow of death. The goat represents, according to verse 21, the king of Greece. And both of them would fight and would kill each other, and the goat will triumph. And after which, after the goat uh, has triumphed, out of the goat comes a little horn that will be a threat to God's people. Let's look up at verse 9, let's look at verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn, which started out small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and, and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the hosts of heavens, and it threw down the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled upon them. Verse 11, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and the sanctuary was thrown down. Verse 12, because of rebellion, the Lord's prophet and the daily sacrifices were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. So things get pretty ugly here. Not only was uh, the golden and ram trying to overtake and overpower each other, but out of, out of the kingdom of Greece comes a king known as the little horn here that's going to cause chaos for the people of God. And this little horn, as many scholars agree, is a solicit king by the name of, Atan, uh, of uh, uh, that will come and he will once again destroy and bring havoc to the people of God. Antiochus is his name and he's called Epiphanes. Epiphanes is a title that he gives himself, which means God manifest. Um, but many of the rabbis look at him as a mad king. This Antiochus Epiphanes um, uh, will come up, and he will become a terror to God's people. Uh, in uh, much later in than Daniel's, t- uh, much later after Daniel, what he does is that he wants every city to become Hellenized, that's to become Greek like. So what he did uh, uh, in the 2nd century was that um, he renamed Jerusalem, not as Jerusalem anymore, but he renames Jerusalem Antioch. He wanted to bring a Greek influence into Jerusalem. And he built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. And you may say, what's wrong with building a gym in a city? After all, we have lots of gyms in every, almost every city in Australia. What's wrong with a gym? Well, in the ancient world, when you go to a gym, you have to go into the gym naked. And for the Jews who prided modesty, such was a no-no. Then Antiochus Epiphanes also decided to open up the office of the high priest for bidding. And uh, whoever can pay him the highest price becomes the high priest in Jerusalem. This is an abomination to the Jews um, in any situation. Because you don't become the high priest by way of a bribe. You become the high priest because you are, one of, you are the son of Aaron. And also, and because of all this chaos that uh, this solicit king brought later on in the history of God's people, there was a rumor that later circulated that Antiochus Epiphanes was killed in Egypt. So when the, because of all this chaos that he was causing, the Jews decided to rebel. They thought he was dead. So in the year 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, when he saw that the Jews rebel, He came to Jerusalem with 22,000 soldiers. He came to Jerusalem on the Sabbath. He knew that on the Sabbath, the Jews could not work and could not fight back. So he decided to enter Jerusalem on their holy day and started slaughtering the Jews. He took many of the women and children captive as slaves, and he burned the city and tore down its walls and he began to start off a very violent policy of Hellenization. He made a decree forbidding the Jews to observe the Sabbath. He stopped the morning and evening sacrifices, the yearly festivals, and he made circumcision of children illegal, something that was at the heart of uh, Old Testament belief. He ordered the copies of the Torah to be destroyed, the Jews were caused to were forced to eat unclean animals and especially pigs. And the temple was polluted and there was a, a, it was was dedicated and renamed the temple for Zeus. Disobedience was punished by death. In fact, there were two women who were caught uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes um, for circumcising their babies. So what did the, the king do? The king had these women march around the city with the babies hung around their breast, and he had them pushed down the city walls to their death. But the climax of this desecration of the Jewish temple happened on the 25th of uh, Chislevd in 167 BC when he erected a statue of Zeus himself and placed it In the temple, and there he erected burnt offerings of pigs given up to Zeus as offerings, which was a was a blasphemy for the Jews because pigs were not supposed to be sacrificed on the altar. And then he ordered the sacrifices were to be offered on the 25th of each month because the 25th marks his birthday, and he wanted these pigs to be sacrificed for his honor. So Daniel predicted a time that will come much later, around 167 BC, that that this vision envisions, that this king, Antinicus Epiphanes, represented by the little horn, that will come and make things even worse for God's people. All of these have been predicted by God here in chapter 8 of Daniel. But did you notice, of all the sacrilegious acts that uh, Tanicus Epiphanes committed, what was the one thing that upset God the most? What was it that broke his heart the most? Was it the building of the gym? The renaming of Jerusalem as Antioch? Or that he prevented the women from sacrificing their, from circumcising their infants? Or how the priestly position was opened up to be bought by money? All these things, I'm sure, were atrocious to God. But the one thing that God picked up that really hurt him the most is found here in verse 11. The Antiochus Epiphanes, the little horn, took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifices were given over to it. God was most upset. I'm sure there were lots of things that this evil king would do. But the thing that God was most upset was that the daily sacrifices were stopped. Four times, in fact, in this passage, God mentions again and again and again and again that the daily sacrifices were stopped by this low horn in God's eyes, to stop the evening and morning sacrifices was equated to the little horn trying to reach up to the heavens and throw down the starry host. It was that serious. Why is worship and prayer, which is what the evening and morning sacrifices were, they were services of worship, why is worship and prayer that important to God? For many of us, worship and, and, and prayer usually come last. Oh, we only come to church if we have time. Uh, we only come to prayer meetings if we have absolutely nothing to do. Any sniff of the nose, any hint of our grandchildren coming on Sunday, any sight of grey clouds, any family event. Oh, I'm not going to church. But in God's eyes, worship the evening and morning sacrificial services were the most important. Because when Tanicus epiphanies tried to meddle with that, God was so angry with him that the, the very fact that he was trying to, to to get rid of these services was like he was trying to strip away the stars from heaven. So why? Why are evening and the, the evening and the morning services at the temple? So important to God. Let's find out. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to him, How long will, will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the century, the trampling underfoot the foot of the Lord's people. Here the Holy One, presuming an angel, begin asking, How long will this disaster last? How long will, uh, will Antiochus Epiphanes torture your people? When will it end? When will God fulfill His promise that God will step in and save the children of Abram? The answer comes at verse 14. He said to me, It will take... 2300 evenings and mornings then the century will be reconsecrated. God reveals here that he will start acting again and save his people just as he promised Abraham that that he will walk through the valley of shadow of death with them it's only after 2300 evenings and mornings notice here Not 2,300 days later, or not 2,300 years later, or not 2,300 hours later, God's timing is not measured by years or days or hours or minutes. How does God measure time? God measures time by the number of evening and morning sacrifices. God measures time by the evening and morning worships. God's timing is linked to our worship and prayer. This is not because God is tied up by human prayers. As if, you know, for God to act, we need to pray. No, no, no. God can act any way He wants. He's sovereign. God can act without anybody asking Him. But in God's mercy and God's grace, God often chooses to act in concert with the prayers and the worship of his people. God chooses to act when humans pray and worship. So when will God act again and save Israel? When his people pray. Not long ago, we were in the city of Odos. Odos is in the northern part of China, near, very near Mongolia. And we were in Odos, the city of Odos, uh, we realized that the sun doesn't set until you know, maybe quite late, nine o'clock at night, and it doesn't get very bright in the morning uh, until quite late. Our, so we asked our tour guide, what's, what's happening here? Our tour guide began explaining to us now, although China canvasses around five time zones, the whole nation canvasses around five time zones, uh, the whole of China actually, the, the time is only based on only one time zone, and that's the time in Beijing. So Beijing sets the time for the entire nation. So whether you're in the northern part of the China or in the most southern part of China or whether in the eastern part of China, Everywhere you go, regardless of how far you are, whatever time zone you are, they all follow just one timing, the time of Beijing. Beijing sets the time for the entire nation. Here, God's timing is set by one time zone only. God's timing of how and when he acts is set upon the prayers and the worship of his people. God measures time by the prayers and the worship of his people. That's why it's called 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices, not 2,300 days or years. But why 2,300? 2,300 roughly comes up to around three and a half years. In the Bible, seven is the perfect number, three and a half is just a half of seven which is a very symbolic way of saying that God will act very quickly, that God will not take forever to act. And God will act quickly because the people pray and they worship. This explains why Daniel in chapter 6, when people were trying to throw him into the lion's den, what did Daniel do? Did Daniel fight back? Did Daniel have a plan on his own of how to counteract these people so that he will not be thrown into the den? Did Daniel prepare a speech to the king and say why he's innocent? No, 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 what did Daniel do? Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 tells us that he went up to the room with his windows open. He prayed. And how many times did Daniel pray? Three times a day. Why? He wanted God to act. Daniel knew about this vision, that God acts in connection with the prayers of his people. And that's why Daniel prayed. That's why Daniel didn't have a plan to counteract these evil people. But Daniel's only plan was prayer. Because he knew that for God to act, he always acts and chooses to act. Not because he has to, but God chooses to act in concert with the prayers of his people. Instead of just praying twice, Daniel prayed three times because he wants God to act quickly because he knows chapter 8 and he has seen this vision before he encountered those evil people in chapter 6. What does this mean for us? Yes, God has promised to Abram That he had made a covenant with his people. That he will walk with his people through the most difficult times. Through the valley of the shed of death. The midst of all these goats and rams fighting and killing each other. In the midst of all the, 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 the things that are corrupt and evil. That God will walk with us. But when will God act and save us? when his people come together to pray and worship. I was just talking to a pastor this week, last week. He was telling me how many churches, especially here in Australia, are small. And uh, many of these small churches are so small that they don't have money to employ pastors. And how some Churches have a, a big have a budget to, uh, to employ pastors, yet they're unwilling to reach out. All they care about is themselves. So it becomes very difficult. Once an employer pastor is willing to reach out, they fire him. And they only employ those pastors who want things to be in status quo. And these churches get smaller and smaller and smaller. And when I hear stories like that, my heart just broke. But then I read this passage of scripture. And I'll pray to God. This passage so challenged me in the sense that if you want God to work and sweep and bring a revival across this great land of God, we need to pray. God often uses the prayers of his people to get things done. Not because God is tied to the prayers of the human, God can act anywhere he wants, but out of his mercy and his grace. He often uses the worship and prayers of his people to get things done. Daniel knew the secret, and so should we. Years before he became a renowned worldwide global evangelist, Billy Graham was just an ordinary preacher. If you put 20 preachers and line it up one after another, you wouldn't even rank, many people wouldn't even rank Billy Graham as one of the top five. He was very ordinary in his preaching. Yet his life took a turn when Billy Graham, as a very young man, attended a conference where he heard another young evangelist preached, a Welsh evangelist by the name of Stephen Olfert preached. After the service, Billy Graham approached uh, Stephen Olfert and asked him, Why Stephen Olfert did not issue an invitation call? Because if he were to issue an invitation call, Billy Graham himself would have responded and have come forward. And Billy Graham told Stephen Olfert this, Stephen, you have something, there is something about you and your preaching that I have not got. I want to know how you can tap into the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. I want that too. So Graham and Alfred spent two days at the hotel studying the scriptures and praying together. And it was at this time that the 28-year-old Billy Graham realized that the one thing that was missing in his life was that he needed to come and pray and earnestly be broken before God, allow the spirit to take control, and seek God in prayer. It was there Billy Graham broke down in tears and gave himself up for God to use and to seek God in prayer. And the change in Billy Graham's preaching was dramatic and immediate because that same night, Stephen Orford invited Billy Graham to speak. And when Billy Graham started preaching, You could feel the anointing of God. And before he gave the invitation, the people came forward to accept Jesus Christ. And the crowd just came forward one after another. Ultimately, the whole audience responded to Billy Graham's call. Alfred writes this. My own heart was so moved by Billy's authority and strength that I could hardly drive home. And when I came home, my father looked me in the face and said, what on earth happened? And I said, Dad, something happened tonight. Something happened to Billy Graham. The world is going to hear this great man. And it all started with prayer. And Billy Graham embarked on his first crusade in 1947. But a few months before the crusade, Billy Graham had a surgery. Billy Graham wanted to stop and the crusade and he didn't want to be part of the crusade he wanted out and some say it's because of his physical surgery that he just had but others who were more perceptive felt that Billy Graham actually was struggling with fear but it was the prayers of the people that were around the crusade that prayed for Billy Graham that Billy Graham had the courage later on to step up and lead his first crusade and that was the first of 400 crusades across 185 countries over six continents and according to his staff more than 3.2 million people responded to the Billy Graham crusade to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And because of this crusade, Billy Graham preached the gospel to more, person, more people in person than anyone else in history. And when his uh, televised program broadcasted in 1996, Alone, it reached over 2.5 billion people worldwide. All of this happened. Not because Billy was great. Put him with 25 preachers and he would not even make the top five. He even wanted to cancel his first crusade. No, the greatness of Billy Graham was because he prayed and depended upon the spirit. When the people of God starts to pray, It means that God is about to start working. When I heard the stories of how the Australian churches are dying and are kicking out pastors who want to make a change, my heart just broke. But it also reminded me that it's time to pray. If God wants to start a revival, He will get His people to pray. That's how Billy Graham's crusade started. And that's how all of God's work will start. That's why when Daniel was persecuted, he prayed. That's why when we are wondering if God has given us his best, it's time for us to pray. And we will see God work. And we will see the cross of Christ established. And we will see God. At his best. Father, we just want to thank you for this passage of scripture. That we bring us again to your feet. That the work of the kingdom does not depend upon us. But depends upon us working with your spirit through prayer. So God, I want to pray that you will. Humble us to seek you. Lord, I pray for our nation here in Australia, that God, you will raise up men and women to pray for our nation, because when you are about to start your work of sweeping revival, you will use the prayers and worship of your people. Forgive us, Lord God, when we place worship and prayer so low in the list of our priorities. But you place it such highly in this passage that you measure time according to the prayers and worship of your people. So Lord, we come before you, humbly before you. Let's be quiet before God. I can sense the spirit moving powerfully in our midst this morning. Let's be quiet before God, just for a moment. And when He moves, and when we pray, where to the wall now stands away, where every promise is amen. And when He moves, make no mistake: the bowels of hell began to shake. All hail the Lord! All hail the King! Awake, my soul, and sing. Sing his praise aloud. Sing his praise aloud. Sing with me, church. And when he moves, and when we pray, Where's to the wall now stands away, Where every promise is amen, and when he moves make no mistake the bowels of hell began to shake Oh hail the lord all hail the king awake mine soul and sing just our voices S- sing his praise aloud Sing his praise aloud. Lord, we lift up our prayers and worship to you this morning. Move, Lord, in ways that only you can. Show us the power of the mighty God who has given us his best through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. Show us your power today as we seek you in prayer.